Agua. There's a woman who's watching us or listening to us right now, and she's wondering, so this guy's an expert on happiness. I'm wondering what the hell he means by that. Can you define happiness for her? Yes. Um, happiness is the peaceful aliveness that you feel inside all the time, whether you're aware of it or not. So I define it a little differently than other folks do. So there's a place inside of you where happiness lives and lives all the time. Sometimes you're aware of it and you call yourself happy when you're aware of it. Sometimes you're not aware of it and you call yourself unhappy when you're not aware of it. But it's something that lives infinitely and eternally within you as a thoughtless, wordless, faceless, formless energy. It isn't pleasure, although it's often pleasurable. It isn't anticipation, although it often can feel like it's wrapped up in anticipation. It's not excitement, although it can be exciting. It's a peaceful aliveness or an alive peacefulness that always exists within you. That's the best way I could probably describe it. I'm Rick Sanchez, and I'm so glad that you're there. And I'm so glad that we keep having this opportunity to be able to learn from each other. You know, I say learn from each other because no one's more imperfect than me. As you know, just do a little Google search, Rick Sanchez, and you're going to find moron, idiot, screwed up, imperfect. And you might also find a couple of good things. But, you know, we, we, we learn more from our experiences sometimes on the way down as we do on the way up. And that's a really important thing to consider as we make our lives. Notice I said make our lives, right? You know, here on the Rick Sanchez podcast and here on Agua Media, what we try to do is share ideas, share principles, share strategies that can make you grow and make you, I guess, more whole, more aspirational, more inspirational. In the end, it's more success, right? But Success is a funny word because it conjures up all these things for people that have to do with just money and status and clothing and cars. And it's so much more than that. It's really in many ways about a picture, right? So if you think of a picture, a canvas, right? And, and you drew something. You decided one day, and I'm sure you've done this. We all did this. We all doodle. And you draw a picture and it's in a frame, kind of like in a rectangle. And then you stand back and you look at it and maybe you put a horse over here and a house over there and flowers over here and a mountain in the background, but you look over to the right and you go, oh my God, it's missing something. What does it need there? I don't know. Maybe it's a mango tree. To me, as a kid who grew up as a Latino, it's a mango tree. Maybe to you, it's an apple tree. I don't know what it is. Could be anything. It could be a well. It could be another house. But you're looking at that picture and you're standing back and you're going, I need to put something else in there. That's kind of like what your life is like. But we don't do that enough because we're too busy, right? We're just moving along. Every once in a while, you just need to take a step back and look and say, I need more value, right? I need a, I, I need a course in law. I need to understand accounting a little better because I've noticed that, man, I suck at even just balancing my checkbook. I need to find a way to maybe change my hair. Whatever it is, it could be anything. Your tie selection. But every once in a while, you just got to stand back. My wife and I recently went gardening. Love doing this, by the way. You know, we got this really nice place out here now, and it looks like a freaking tropical park or national park sometimes with all the trees and the horses and the, all the stuff that's there. And recently we decided we were going to do some work on a weekend and it was the greatest thing in the world. So we went out and we bought 
uh, enough plants and enough flowers to fill a, a bed, a garden, right? So you can picture this garden. And we bought, I think, 14 different plants to go across the front. And then, of course, we did them in stages. So it was 14. And then behind them, there were 13 and then another 14. So there's like different patterns. But then we got home and we started planting. <laughs> and when we stood back, we realized, well, if you're going to put one plant for foot and you only got 14, you're only going to fill 14 feet. Guess what? We needed to fill 17 feet. So we had like, <laughs> right, four feet of empty space. So we sat back and looked at it and went, hmm, what's missing here? <laughs> more plants, more flowers, right? It's kind of like our lives. Think of your life as standing back once in a while and looking at your garden or looking at your canvas or looking at something that makes you understand that it's missing something. Missing something is not bad. Missing something is good. Missing something means that you are able to recognize that there's more value that you need to add into your life. And, you know, I can't say it enough. This is one of the most important things that you'll learn as you go through life. And this is what we do. We're constantly having conversations. And that's really what I've turned my podcast into. Sure, after being a news guy all my life, I can talk all day about the news. But I think there's something more important here. I think the idea that we can learn lessons from each other, and I'm, you know, an old guy who's lived a long life and had a lot of failures and a lot of success. I just want to share. And I want to share with you something special today. Something really, really cool. I'm going to introduce you to somebody who believes you lead with happiness. Now think about that for a minute. How many of us today, especially in this country at this time, as we've been talking about in recent podcasts, are glued to the elements that make us unhappy? Whether it's cable news and they're telling you, you got to hate this guy or the former president or the president president, or it's a sports show that tells you which team you should hate and you got to watch them because you hate them. Or it's a, a celebrity that they're going to be ganging up on this week because they screwed up. It could have been me. It has been me. Or you could lead with happiness. So he's a therapist. He's an author. I mean, you've seen him because he's on Today Show, Good Morning America, Access Hollywood. He's been on OWN. And he, and, he, and he talks about what we can do to improve our lives, improve our situation from a really interesting perspective. Because remember, this podcast, we call it Latino Plus. And what is Latino Plus? Latino is Latinos, because we happen to be 20% of the population in the United States, but we're African-American, we're Indian-American, we're outliers, we're LGBT, we're all the things that don't fit into that conventional bubble, that conventional space. And that's who he is. Robert Mack is good enough to join us now, and that's pretty much the way I see him. He may see himself a little bit differently, but it's great to have you, Robert. How oh, are so you? Did, is that you? Did I did I capture you? I received that. Absolutely, I received that. I certainly lead my life with happiness, and I don't think I fit in a box without <laughs> question, so you nailed it. That's great. What When we talk about the things that we need to do every once in a while, and maybe now more than ever, because I'm not kidding. I, I think we're in a place right now in this world and certainly in this country where we're very siloed, very angry, very non-determinant. Everything seems to be about what I don't have or what I hate. I told this story the other day. I sometimes have found myself, and I know others do this, not watching a sporting event. And I love sports. I think we all do every once in a while to watch a good sporting event. I will choose to watch a sporting event to watch a team lose rather than to watch a team win. 
it's like, I want to see Alabama lose because they win too much. Or I want to see the Cowboys lose. Or I want to see the Raiders lose. Or I want to see the Yankees lose. And there's a lot of us like that. That's not healthy and we should recognize it. So when I ask you about what is happiness, it seems to me like it's almost the opposite of what we're feeling today as Americans, politically and in sports and in everything else. I think you nailed it. I mean, we haven't ever had as many unhappy people in the world, including the states, as we do today. Uh, which means that we also haven't had a, as great an opportunity to be happy as we do today. And you're also right, which is that you can never feel, uh, feel or find happiness by focusing on all the unhappy aspects or parts or traits or qualities of yourselves, other people, or the world or life. And so the only way to be happy is you've got to focus on happy things, happy people, and uh, happy aspects. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because that's not an easy thing to do. The only way to be happy is to focus on happy things and happy people and happy experiences. How do you search those out? Where do you find them? How do you make that pivot? Yeah, practice, lots of practice. You know, you're right. I mean, I blame both nature and nurture. We're sort of born with a brain that's wired for survival, not necessarily happiness, right? So it comes with all these cognitive biases and cognitive distortions, like negativity bias. Mm -hmm. It can make it very difficult to focus on what's going well and what's going right in the world. But then we complicate that because we practice that way of seeing things for the rest of our lives. And often, often very well-intentioned people teach us to do that consciously or unconsciously. So it's practice mostly, you know, and it's a skill that can be learned. We've discovered that through the field of applied positive psychology. You can actually learn to be grateful, learn to be optimistic, learn to tell a truthful but better feeling story about yourself and life and other people. All right. So, so, so I love it. I love where you're going with this. So I want to drill down now. Um, you say you can learn to be happy. You can learn to be successful. You can learn these skills. How do you learn those skills? How do you make yourself uh, concentrate on the positive when we live in a world that tends to throw the negative at us in unbelievably gigantic amounts? Yeah. Well, I think the first place you start is to recognize that suffering doesn't work, <laughs> that negativity <laughs> doesn't work, right? I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but most of us don't live our lives that way. And so if you're in doubt, you can always turn to the field of positive psychology. There's about 20 years, thousands and thousands of empirical time-tested face valid studies that strongly insist success, no matter what way you define success, health, relationships, marriage, kids, money, None of those things leads to a happy life. And you can also remind yourself that the only reason you want to achieve, accomplish, or acquire anything in the world, including love and relationships and health and money, is because you think you'll feel better for having it. So ultimately, what we're all after, no matter what we're after, is happiness. Hmm. You could just prioritize that above all else. Then you can take a beeline directly to happiness instead of routing it through so many people, places, and things. But what if life really does suck for you? What if, what if you really do have a crappy job? What if your girlfriend really did leave you? What if you barely have enough money to get by? What if your parents uh, have passed away or maybe didn't pass away, but they don't call you and they don't really care about you because they're both alcoholics? All these things are real stories that real people have to cope with. And you tell them you have to be happy and they want to almost give you the finger and say, yeah, walk in my shoes, Robert. What do you say to those folks? I've been there. I feel that. It resonates. And also, I think 
what I've discovered is, first of all, the world doesn't care, <laughs> right? And you're only making your own life worse. The more you can't control the things around you and the more things around you that you can't control, the more important it is to control the one thing that you can always control, which is what you think and where you focus your time, energy, effort, and attention. That's just critical. And so if you want to change the external conditions and circumstances in your life, we have lots of research again that posits this idea and this notion that if you want to change those external conditions and circumstances, you have to do it from an inside out or an inside out way, which means that you've got to improve the way you feel. And when you improve the way you feel, you improve your life. So when you feel better, you actually do better, like in tangible, material, physical, financial, and relational and social ways, you do better and life goes better. But that's hard sort of pill for most people to swallow. And that's why science is so valuable that way, because you can look right into the research studies that show it's true. Have you suffered? Oh, so much. I mean, my life has just been one, feels like just one endless experience of suffering after the next. I mean, <laughs> I was six or seven years of age, and I remember my first memories being nothing but stress, anxiety, depression, self-loathing, self-hating perfection. I always thought I'd grow out of it. You know, you just think, look, one day I'll accomplish my dreams. I'll have some money. I'll have some friends. I'll have a girlfriend, hopefully. And I'll just grow out of the unhappiness and the depression. But that's not what happened. It got worse for me. Huh. So the more I accomplished and achieved and acquired, I mean, I was saluted to one of my high school class. I was also most shy in my high school class. Got a good consulting job. I made good money. I had friends. I had a beautiful girlfriend. I just became more depressed. And I got to a place where I was experiencing suicidal ideation dozens and dozens of times a day you know so i what is what is suicidal ideation pardon me for not knowing no thinking about killing yourself i wanted to kill myself and i thought about ways to kill myself all day every day i thought about that more than i thought about anybody or anything else why would you want to kill yourself i mean look at you you're 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 an incredibly dapper looking guy you've got an ivy league education you come across with unbelievable presence i mean to look at you and to hear that you hated yourself and wanted to kill yourself almost sounds like you got horns growing out of your head i might have to come on here more often <laughs> well, that's not the way i saw it you know that's not the way i experienced any of it i um it's two th two reasons really nothing was ever good enough right so there was that yeah. second of all no matter what I achieved, accomplished, or acquired, I just didn't feel better on the inside. And then I felt guilty that I didn't feel more gratitude for this incredible life that I had. You know, I was healthy, had a great job, made good money, had friends, girlfriend. I just didn't, I couldn't feel subjectively better on the inside, mm. despite how much objectively better on the outside everything kept getting. And that was so unsettling and disturbing, confusing. And I didn't see any way out. You know, I just thought, well, this is probably as good as it gets, and I'm more miserable than I've ever been. So the Robert Mack that you just described, the guy who was really forlorn in so many ways and sad and depressed, 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 important word, um, is no longer there. What was the pivot? How, how did that Robert Mack move out and a space was created for this guy I'm talking to now? Yeah, I mean, I got to a place where I decided to do some research. I was like, well, how am I going to kill myself? Damn. I decided I was going to slash my wrist. I was going to slit my wrist. So I really, went to the kitchen. I mean, it yeah. was, yeah. you, you were, yeah. you, it wasn't just oh. thoughts suicidal. No, no. It was actually done. I was done. I was tapped out. It was like, I saw it as pointless because that, because I kept thinking of if this is how bad I feel being relatively successful, how much worse I'm going to feel 
when it all goes away. And it was all, wait, I got to stop for a moment. Everything you described, this suicidal action you were planning was based on thoughts. You, 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 you didn't have a horrible illness. You didn't lose somebody you had loved all your life. You didn't lose a gig. You, there, there was no catalyst for that feeling that was physical or permanent, right? It was all inside. That's right. But I couldn't see that at the time. So it seemed like to a large extent, gosh, I only have a three series. You know, I only have a, at the time it was like, I only have a, I had a C class and three. It's like, I only have this car and I should be so much more successful than this. And I'm, you know, working so many hours and look at how so much more successful everybody else is. And my girlfriend's probably going to leave me eventually. And, you know, it just was endless. So I didn't see it that way. I thought I was, I recognized that I had a pretty good life, but it just didn't seem nearly good enough. And it also didn't seem like no matter how good it got, I'd ever be happy regardless. Yeah. But I didn't have the recognition that it was just my thoughts that were causing the problem. Because then I might have been able to intervene on my own behalf. Instead, I just said, hey, I'm depressed. Maybe it's biochemical. Maybe it's neurological. Maybe it's just who and what I am. And the only way out is suicide. So you asked all those questions about what this might be emanating from. And when you were done asking all of those questions... What did you find out? Well, the strange thing is, I didn't find out a whole lot, not from my own digging within my own head and my own brain. Hmm. Dug this knife in, and what happened next is what changed my experience and began to send me in a different direction. Is that I dig the knife in, and all of a sudden, without anything changing, I felt this like limitless peace and uh, ineffable joy and true happiness and even love. You know? when, when you say you stuck a knife in, are you speaking? Um... Literally in my wrist. So I, I stuck it in. I was, you know, I started to slash slice my wrist. And, you know, when you go about doing that, I was still nervous about it. I was like, how much pain is this going to be? I've gotten cut before. And so, so I'm digging it in. I just all of a sudden felt this relief on one hand and it wasn't attached. At first I was like, it was maybe it's associated with the actual physical cutting wasn't that i just felt relief and calmness and peace and even love and i was like you know <laughs> i want to postpone the suicide thing for like five or ten minutes i mean rick that was it it was 10 minutes and at the time it was very ambitious i was like i don't think it can last 10 minutes but now it's laughable so i put it off for 10 minutes and in that 10 minutes i started doing a slightly different kind of research i was like what is depression what is happiness? And the first thing I discovered, I wasn't alone. Most people at some point in their life had felt some version of what I had felt. Maybe they weren't suicidal, yeah. but they were stressed out and anxious and maybe they were over it. No, I have, like you, and I think like many people, including you who are listening to us right now, who are listening to this podcast, have experienced or have been diagnosed with some kind of depression whether it's mild depression or clinical depression or obtuse depression or whatever it is, I think whether we know it or not, all of us have felt that. I guess it comes down to degrees. And then the most important question in all of life is what do you do about it? What do you do about having a sense that the world is sucks and you don't even want to be a part of it anymore. Because that's kind of what depression sometimes feels like. 
it, you just can't get off the schneid no matter what you do, right? And when you got to that place, and it almost sounds like rock bottom, and you came really close to actually killing yourself. Wow. Yeah. What was the bounce yeah. back like? It was very slow. <laughs> very slow. And it happened in fits and starts. So it'd be like two steps forward, a thousand steps back, because I was trying to piece together solutions on my own. The best thing I discovered was that there were other people out in the world who had suffered like I had suffered and had spent their life, dedicated their life to finding answers and providing them to the rest of us. So hmm. one thing I knew was that I was, I was smart enough to know I didn't know a whole lot and that there were a lot smarter people out there in the world who had solved for this problem that I was struggling with. So I just started to find and read as many books, listen to podcast shows like this, watch anything and read anything and listen to anything I could that taught me something about how to be happier no matter what. So much so that you became a teacher of happiness. I know. It's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you, you, some, some people jump in. You dove in, man, head first. Yeah, yeah. No water. Just right. <laughs> Bang my head a couple of times. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it was a slow process, though, because at the beginning, I had no interest in this as a career. I mean, I, really, the career was way, way, way down the road. I just wanted to be happy. Yeah. And I started in the beginning just saying, hey, if all these things I've been doing, like chasing the corporate career, doing everything everybody's telling me I should be doing, is leading me to this depression and suicidal ideation, maybe I'll just do the opposite of it for a while and see how that goes. You know, give up the corporate job. I'll separate from the girlfriend. I'll move to a warmer place. And strangely enough, a lot of that stuff actually helped and moved the needle a little bit. So changing your environment was a big part of your recuperation. Absolutely. And, you know, there's an expression in lots of communities, which is called pulling a geographic. And generally, we know it's true that from a psychological perspective or scientific perspective, just changing where you live or your home state or your home city, it's probably not going to make you permanently, lastingly, meaningfully and abidingly happier. Okay. That being said, there are always exceptions and outliers. And I'm pretty convinced I struggled or was suffering from seasonal affective disorder. You know, the lack of light, the lower levels of vitamin D as a result of the lack of light. And it was mm. all affecting me. Um, but also there's other things too. It was just like, as a result of that, I wasn't out in nature as much. I wasn't moving my body as much. You know, I would find myself surrounded by people that were also feeling the same way. And so it was more, it was a change in environment, yes. And that led to a change in other things after that. So how important is that? That's fascinating. I'm struck by that point you just made, that one of the ways that we can change ourselves when we feel depressed or we feel unhappy with ourselves is to change our environment. And I, I'm, I'm sure when you say environment, you don't, need, you don't mean necessarily, okay, you got to move to a new house or even move to a new state. You mean the, the things you do, the people you hang out with, the places you go, the restaurants you eat at, the, uh, the place where you work, all of those things are changing your environment, right? Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it. I mean, you know, one of the major both symptoms and I would argue causes of depression is self-ruminative thought, self-rumination. It means that you're thinking in thought loops. You know, you kind of, it's the same record playing over and over again in your head, mostly negative, mostly redundant, right? And the beautiful thing about changing your environment is that it introduces a level of novelty and even challenge into your daily experience. So you have, you're forced to come off of autopilot and you can't just exist there in those ruminative loops 
of negativity and toxicity that remind you of how bad your life sucks and how much you suck. And so that in and of itself is like a pattern interrupt that gets you out of that negative, depressing spiral. But I would imagine that if you're going through that negative loop, as I think you say it, that is highly personal, which means most of the time people are going to keep that inside. In fact, they're probably a little embarrassed about it and they don't want anybody to know about it. So because of that, they, 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 they isolate and they lack communication. I would imagine that in, in your case, you probably had to find something or some other entity to be able to share what you were experiencing, to be able to get yourself off the schneid, so to speak, right? Yeah, uh, you just absolutely nailed it. You know, I was doing precisely what you said. I was isolating, I was, you know, feeling very alienated and it was on purpose. I'm an introvert by nature, so it's already kind of in my nature, but the worse I felt, the more I wanted to isolate. and I didn't want to share it with anyone else. At this time, I was afraid I was going to lose my corporate job, quite frankly. Like, they're going to think I'm crazy, yeah. you know, and then they might make, put me on drugs. And I didn't think the drugs were going to help anyway, because I thought there was something inherently, innately wrong with me that couldn't be fixed that way. And so I never really did. I would occasionally, when I met people, I would share some morbid joke. And it was my way of a little testing the water. Like they opened this conversation, you know, and I'd find most people were not. They'd like look at me like I had horns on my head, like there was something wrong with me. So I didn't get an opportunity to share and you nailed it. Sharing is extraordinarily cathartic, especially if you can share with someone who holds or is able to hold space for you um, in, you know, psychology world, we call it unconditional regard. So someone who's not judging you while you share what you share, right? So they're not making it worse for you. Um, that's That was just critical for most people. I didn't have an opportunity to do that. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Julio Gallerati, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. A lot of people like you and me, and I say you and me because I somehow relate to you somewhat. I think we're both a little bit of outliers. Um, uh, I grew up tough, obviously. And, uh, you know, I don't know what your situation was. You're an African-American male. I'm a Latino male. Uh, the United States is not really designed for guys like you and me. And when I first went to work at uh, NBC News, when they took me up there and I looked around, I was like, oh, my God, there is nobody here like me. These guys all went to the finest Ivy League schools and their parents are all very wealthy and they're very connected. And I don't fit. How am I going to make myself fit? Well, I'm, I'll, I'll just fake it. I'll, I'll figure it out. But it was it was unsettling. And sometimes that feeling for guys like you and me and so many others out there. And they, it doesn't have to be about the color of your skin or or your nationality. In many ways, sometimes you could be a, a Southern kid from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, whose parents were poor and you find yourself suddenly in a corporate setting and you feel so alone because you go, there's nobody here like me. And that nobody here like me thinking sometimes can be hard to get over, especially when you're young. Now at our age, we're like, 
<laughs> I knew more than all of those idiots. I just didn't know it at the time. I have more advantages. I speak two languages. I come from a different culture. I have different ways of seeing things. I've got a wider angle lens, but you don't know it at that point. So it hurts you and it sets you back and it could even make you a little depressed. And I wonder sometimes if that kind of played into it a little bit for you. Oh, for sure. I felt like a total oddball. You know, I was a, I was a nerd, but I played sports. I'm a brown guy you know, and uh, African-American, part Native American, part white, you know, part Spanish, all the things, right? And so, and I grew up right down the street from the KKK, <laughs> like right down the street. Did you so, really? Yes, right down the street from the KKK. Where, the where did you grow up? Where, where, where was that? In a, in a place called Little Washington, Washington, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. So it's outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, yeah, and so, you know, that in of itself was a little bit more than unsettling. And sometimes we'd come to school um, and we'd get through our lockers and there'd be nooses in the lockers and, you know, stuff like that. And I thank God, I mean, like you, I, um, <laughs> my parents are just soldiers, you know, my dad mm. as a disciplinarian, he was in the military and my mom, you know, um, just incredibly self-sacrificing and they're very hardy, resilient people, you know? And so they would just kind of, they just kind of laugh these things off, you know? And I remember as a kid being like, but it was helpful in a way because I also had an appreciation for much, how much harder they had it. So I was like, you know, so that was both challenging on one hand to feel like such an outsider, but on the other, thank God, I had a family that helped me kind of keep perspective on things. Hmm. Um, so that was very helpful. But you're right about that. Like I felt all kinds of out of place in every way, you know, in every way I felt out of place, skin color, just the way I thought, the things I thought about, the way I walked, the way I talked, all of it. I just didn't feel like I fit in. I find that, you know, when you're in that situation, eventually the way that you find the exit, and that's the way we tend to do it, those of us who are kind of strivers, is you just outwork everybody. You just say, you know what, no matter what it is, I'm just going to put my nose to the grindstone and I'm going to get it done. I mean, that's why, you know, there are books and statistics on this that the most successful people in the history of the world, and certainly in the history of the United States, are people who are either immigrants or started with nothing, with zero. I mean, it, it's not Trump's kids or the Bush kids or the Clinton kids or whoever. I'm just using those names. I don't mean to offend any of them, but it's it's not people who had it. It's people who didn't and had to gain it that were then able to redo it. In fact, sometimes the, the children of those people don't succeed because they never really had to. So, Oh, no question about it. I mean, uh, resilience and grit and optimism – these are things that, you know, you can build, that you can cultivate, that you can learn. And it's only because I often had, and we often had so little, and I felt like so much of an outsider, and I was so depressed and unhappy that I'm able to appreciate so much more deeply what I do have. And, you know, including the happiness and, uh, you know, health and all these other things. Um, it's hard to appreciate things that you've always had forever and that have come to you so easily. And so on one hand, it can be frustrating when you see folks that have inherited you know, their success, they've inherited their wealth, it can be frustrating. On the other hand, um, you, you know, you can also feel something for those folks because the people in my private practice who often struggle the most with happiness and with gratitude are the folks that have never had to go without, right? So you're right. I also grew up the same way with the hard work, you know, the work ethic thing. I mean, gosh, that was like the mantra in our household. It's like, yeah. you're upset, you're not successful, you're failing, whatever, work harder. I don't want to hear exactly. about it. Don't complain. Just work harder. <laughs> I feel like your dad's sitting in between us right now talking about yeah, that. Yeah, he is. He's here. Yeah. So there are, uh, there's a woman who's watching us or listening to us right now, and she's wondering, so this guy's an expert on happiness. I'm wondering what the hell he means by that. 
Can you define happiness for her? Yes. Um, happiness is the peaceful aliveness that you feel inside all the time, whether you're aware of it or not. So I define it a little differently than other folks do. So there's a place inside of you where happiness lives and lives all the time. Sometimes you're aware of it and you call yourself happy when you're aware of it. Sometimes you're not aware of it and you call yourself unhappy when you're not aware of it. But it's something that lives infinitely and eternally within you as a thoughtless, wordless, faceless, formless energy, if we'll call it that. But it's not what it isn't. It isn't pleasure, although it's often pleasurable. It isn't anticipation, although it often can feel like it's wrapped up in anticipation. It's not excitement, although it can be exciting. It's a peaceful aliveness or an alive peacefulness that always exists within you. That's the best way I could probably describe it. How do you get it? Yeah. Well, you always have it, so you don't have to worry about getting it, but you do want to become increasingly aware of it. And there's a number of ways. I'd say there's really a four-step process. The first step is really low-hanging fruit. It's to identify your happiness islands and happiness deserts. Happiness islands are activities that you love for their own sake. Happiness deserts are activities that you do not love for their own sake. You only so, love for the results they bring or you don't love at all. So the first one was what? Happiness islands. Islands. Okay. Yep. So the island is what you're, you're searching for as much as possible in your life, I imagine, right? Yeah. Those are things you love for their own sake. You know, I love being at the gym. I love great music. I love conversations like this. So you want to identify those things. And then you want to identify the opposite of those things, the happiness deserts or valleys. And the idea is to try to spend as much time participating in those happy activities, those happiness islands as you can, and spend as little time on your happiness deserts as possible. So that means outsource, delegate, reduce, eliminate, automate or regulate all of the deserts, all the things you don't like or enjoy mm. as much as humanly possible. Now, you can't do that fully with everything, obviously, but you just want to be more and more cognizant of what you can eliminate, reduce, automate, regulate, outsource or delegate. So you can spend more time on the happy activities or happiness islands. That's so step I one. Identify the islands and also yeah. identify the deserts. The islands right. are the things that tend to make you happy. Gather those up, know what they are, and live there whenever you can. Identify the deserts. Those are the ones you don't like, the ones that bring you somewhat of a sense of negativity and as much as possible avoid them or delegate them and that way you will tend to live more time on the island and less time in the desert i got That's it right i got yeah. it yeah very simple step one is very simple right we all intuitively get that although we often should ourselves to death by thinking we should do this thing even though we hate this thing even though somebody else can do this thing everything we pay somebody else to do this thing we just feel like we should but it's like <laughs> I love what Billy Bob Thornton says. He says, your only problem is you think there are rules. There are no rules. <laughs> there are no rules. rules. Right. I agree with that and I've talked about that, but I do have a problem uh, myself that I just, listening to you explain that, I sometimes feel, well, I hate to admit this so publicly, but I almost prefer to be in the desert so I can feel sorry for myself and let everybody know how hard I'm working. Yeah. You want to justify the pain and suffering. <laughs> That's <laughs> What an idiot I am. But and, and just like everyone else, everyone's got a little bit of that inside. We call it ego. But it's a little bit of this, I need to justify why my pain and suffering exists and why it's real. What we don't realize is we're just increasing the pain and suffering by looking for justifications that it exists or that it should exist. Huh. 
Yeah. We so just, we try and justify our horrible feelings, and then we kind of uh, what 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 is the word that I'm looking for? Wallow in them. <laughs> yes. Well, that's right. I mean, it's like being in a burning building, and just instead of getting out of the burning building, you just continue to dump fuel into that fire. And then you're like, oh, it's so hot in here. Man, it's so hot in here. There's so much fuel in here. But it's like, we do that ourselves. We're the ones responsible for fueling the fire that is our unhappiness. Okay. We're talking to Robert Mack. He's an expert on happiness. His first step is identify your islands and your deserts. Try and live more on your islands than you do on your deserts. Deserts, pardon me. English is my second language. So every once in a while, I screw it up. What is step two, Robert? English is my first language and I screw it up. Uh, the, second th- the second step is to do the same thing with the people in your life. And so you want to identify those people who basically support your happiness or your attempt to be happy, who are happy themselves or at least aspire to be happy themselves, and identify those people who are energy vampires, who do not support you in being happy, who make you feel guilty consistently or feel bad consistently, who are negative and toxic. So you want to spend as much time with those happy people or people who aspire to be happy as possible and as little time with the people who are energy sapping or energy vampires. Hmm. Uh, that's number two. Okay. It's very simple as well. It's like so intuitive. It's so obvious. Um, although sometimes it's hard for us to follow through with it. Uh, it is simple. Well, and it's sometimes difficult to identify which is which because sometimes we can't recognize the vampire is there because he fools us with Whatever it might be, the car, the alcohol, the drugs, the great laughs, the great moments. But in the end, we finally, maybe a year later, two years later, look back and go, I've known this guy or this gal now for two years, and my life has not gotten better as a result of having them around. I think it's time for me to make a decision about that person. But you got to make the decision, right? Critical. Such a pointed remark, by the way. And you're right. The folk. Some folks you'll feel energized for. So when you get done with a conversation interaction, just notice, do I feel energized or drained? That's how you know. If ultimately you feel energized, probably a pretty good sign. There are helpings to support your happiness. If you feel drained, probably a good sign. They're sucking you dry of happiness. That's uh, the vampire. Yeah. Yes. Try, time to take the steak out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Little try, water. <laughs> try to steak through your vampires. No, don't do that. I'm just kidding. But... Uh, but uh, I guess uh, we're talking, uh, you know, in terms of uh, spiritually, maybe. Um, maybe that's not the right description either. All right. No, metaphorically. Metaphorically. I was going to say metaphorically, but I was wondering if that's uh, <laughs> often not the right explanation either. But you're right, Jerry. It's metaphorically. Let's go with, the, okay, step three. And then we're not going to rob the rest of your stuff. We're going to go to your act. Oh, oh good. So uh, there's only four steps. So step three. So step one, happy actions, happy activities. Step two, happy people, call it that. Step three, happy thoughts. Very simple, not always easy, but simple, which is to start telling a better feeling story based in truth about everything and everybody in your life simply to feel better. Now, this is critical. There are always at least two ways of looking at anything. When I started my happiness private practice, it was mostly about I was mostly talking about how much more unhappy people we had in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. I realized, oh, that's kind of a negative way of talking about happiness. And then later I discovered, wait, that also means that the opportunity to be happy is greater now than it's ever been. It's a subtle little nuance, not that much of a difference. Yeah. But vibrationally, energetically, emotionally, you feel significantly different when you think about it from those two different angles. So a good example, it's raining outside. 
one hand, you could say it's a bad day. Is that true? It's a huge judgment on top of that. That judgment doesn't help you feel happy. It doesn't help you get motivated or do things you might want to do. So you can either talk about it as a bad day, or you can say, gosh, I love when it's sunny. I'm sure looking forward to being sunny again outside. And the rain reminds me of how much I appreciate the sunshine. I wonder if there's some things right here and now I can do inside or do despite the rain that would make me feel better, right? So it's a tiny little tweak. But mm -hmm. the idea is how can I tell a better feeling but truthful story about everything in my life simply to feel better? Because I know that when I feel better, I'll do better and life will go better, right? Again, lots of science to support that. So look for a happy place, one. Look for happy people, two. And look for happy perspectives or takeaways, three. Yes. Right? Yes. This yeah. is great. You don't have to- Genius. This is genius. Yeah, simple. simple. It's simple. And that the, the third step really captures a number of things that positive psychology will talk about maybe in a lengthier or more verbose, verbose way, which is like, Gratitude is covered in there. Optimism is covered in there. Resilience is covered in there. Savoring is covered in there. So there are lots of things that are covered by that simple shortcut or shorthand way of talking about it. Yeah, boy, and that really has a lot to do with perspective too, doesn't it? Perspective is, uh, you know, in many ways, everything. Um, I happen yeah. to have a lot of stock in a publicly traded company, which I was the founder of. And you know, um, before I didn't have any real investment money. And as a result of that company, suddenly I have lots, tens of millions of dollars that are there. But when, and when I'm, when I was there, I was really, really happy. But then suddenly this, suddenly th this thing happened on Wall Street and everything came down and suddenly my stocks were worth much less and my perspective was I didn't have anything instead of look at what I still have compared to what I used to have. So I'm using that as an example in my case. It could be anything, but, you know, I once was poor and then I was rich. I lost half my riches and now I think I'm poor when in actuality I'm still rich. Um, it's kind of a perspective thing and you just put me there and I thank you for doing that. Totally. It's, um, I love that example. Uh, you know, I was unhappy because I had no shoes until I met the man or woman who had no feet. Yeah. Had no feet, right? It's like, boom, that hits you and hits you hard. And so, and you're right too, and this is a very common thing, um, relative income. Relative income matters a lot to people. In fact, they've done lots of studies and they found that people will choose to have half the money. So let's say you offer them $50,000 a year or $100,000 a year. And they say, if we'll give you $50,000 a year, Everybody around you, though, will make twenty-five. We'll give you a hundred thousand dollars, though, and everybody around you will make two hundred thousand. Most people say, "Give me less money. I'll take fifty grand." If everybody around me makes twenty-five thousand, <laughs> which is total ridiculousness on yeah. some level, but relative income, even if it's just within ourselves, is a, is a real thing, right? So, yeah. yes, it's, perspective is everything. It's important to keep perspective. That's awesome. And happiness rule number four. Yeah. So happiness, rule number three is happy thoughts. Rule number four is happy no thoughts. So whenever I mention this one, people kind of freak out. They have a huh? reaction. Huh? Right? They say, how can I not think? You know, how can... I said, listen, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Because I was the most obsessively, compulsively thinking person in the world. And the idea here is simply that happiness is so much easier than you think, literally and figuratively. So in other words, your happiest moments, if you look closely, are always moments when you're 
not thinking a whole lot. And if you are thinking, you're thinking very simple thoughts. So when you're in extraordinary pleasure or pain, just notice, I'm not saying that's happiness, but just notice how quiet your mind is. When your mind is quiet, cool, calm, and composed, we'll call it still and silent, happiness already is. And the more time you spend not thinking, the more deeply you'll feel this inherent or innate happiness that is always within you. Hmm. And I used to just distrust that. I remember hearing that 20 years ago, Rick. And I remember thinking, oh my God, there's no way that's not possible. My mind has been quiet before, maybe for a micro moment, and I felt nothing. But I can tell you now, after practicing and working at this for 20 years, the quieter your mind is, the happier your entire being feels. Sounds like you're describing contemplativeness. How do you become contemplative? How, how, how do you do that in the life that we now lead? And I'm wondering whether you need part of that is something I believe in is literally identifying the distractions which keep you from being contemplativeness, contemplative, pardon me, and eliminate them. Absolutely. That is where you start. Start with the low-hanging fruit. Start with the outside and approach. And ultimately, once you do that, you'll find that sometimes, in some cases, your mind, mind seems to get louder. You seem to become more distracted by little things, sensations in your body, this and that. So the key is, instead of giving time, energy, and attention all the time, to the explanations in your brain, you want to give that time, energy, and attention to the experience of your body. Another way to talk about this is simply unitasking. So when you're doing one thing, try to only do that one thing. Remember, thinking counts as one thing. So if you're showering, just try to, just try to shower, but be more aware of what you feel in all of your five physical senses. Hmm. When you're swiffering, you're vacuuming, whatever it is, just put more of the time, energy, and attention into what you feel in your five physical senses. And just kind of ignore what's going on upstairs in your head. And when thoughts occur, just let them drift sort of out one side. That's so head. important. How many times haven't we done things and then looked back on them and not been able to remember them? And imagine not being able to remember that moment when you're playing catch with your daughter. Remember that moment when you first asked your wife to marry you. Remember... The moments in your life, and all of them are important, whether it's just saying on a Sunday afternoon, let's go for a walk in the park. But if you do the walk in the park, and after the walk in the park, you think back to the walk in the park, and you can't put yourself there again, then guess what? You really weren't there, were you? That's right. Happiness is presence, ultimately. And presence is happiness. And the more present you are, the happier you are and the happier you are, the more present you are. And you also find you're more grat, you know, feel more grateful. And the interesting thing about all this is that, and I get it. I hear my former self and all my clients saying, but wait, if I just focus on being present and I'm just happy, won't my life just fall apart? You know, it's like, will my life just become, I've become a total failure, Rob. How about, it's like, no, just the opposite happens. You access divine insights and into intuitive knowledge that you've always had. You become a lot more emotionally regulated, yeah. a lot more cognitively agile. You inter interact and connect with people in a much more authentic, confident way. You're clearer, more concise, a more creative thinker, better problem solver. Yeah. And what's interesting is all the science supports that. It says, hey, when you get happy, you become increasingly and exponentially more successful in all areas of your life. So happy people make more money. They live longer. They experience better health. They experience less job burnout. They get married earlier. They stay married longer. All the things. That's remarkable. Happy place, uh, happy people, happy thoughts or takeaway, uh, perspective, 
and then happy no thoughts. Yeah, find, find that place, that contemplative place. And when you're there, be there, be present in it. You can't go to the park with your son or daughter to play catch while you're actually trying to do the finances for your company. You can't. It's either right, one or the other, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we've all done it. I know. I mean, I'm not saying we're not all guilty of it in some way, but it's uh, it's so important. I'll tell you what, Robert Mack, therapist, author, life coach, call him. How do people get a hold of you, Robert? Check out my website. It's coachrobmack.com. You can also find me on all social media platforms, probably most consistently Instagram, at official. And you can find both my published books, Love from the Inside Out and Happiness from the Inside Out, everywhere great books are sold, including Amazon and Barnes & Noble. That's great. That's great. We got a podcast yet? No. I had one for a little while, but I'll leave that up to the professionals like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. By the way, in your, in your, in your podcast, um, pardon me, in your uh, website that I've enjoyed looking at and I've been going through it part of the day today while I was working on some other things and it caught my eye. Um, I will say this, you look like a model. So for what it's worth, I'm going to receive that. And that's good. That's like, that's a, um, I think the agency, the model agencies I've had for 10 years, that's all I did for 10 years. I was a model and an actor, which mostly for me meant being unemployed, (laughs) but it was a fun life. (laughs) Which means you were waiting on tables, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Which means I was just waiting for a check and mostly eating, you know, beans and nuts every day. Hmm. Maybe in many ways that was what you needed to get to the place where you are now. 100%. In fact, my dad used to make me work really tough, menial jobs as a kid, just so that he said, one day you're going to appreciate sitting behind a desk, son, and I'm going to show you how. (laughs) There you go. Dad was right. Robert, you're a delight, man. Thanks so much for uh, spending time with us. And uh, on behalf of uh, the thousands of people who are going to be able to learn something from this, I thank you for that. Because these are real important uh, life lessons that you have shared with them that can change their lives. And hopefully it will. Pleasure and privilege is all mine. You could have had anybody on today and you had me. So I appreciate you and I appreciate the work you do. We'll get you back. We'll get you back. I look forward to talking to you again. And if you're ever down this way, come on out to the ranch. Oh, don't tell me. I'm too close. I'll be up there. (laughs) You're like, why isn't he leaving? (laughs) God bless, man. Take care. Well, that's it. This is the Rick Sanchez podcast. This has been amazing. I, I so enjoy learning for me and through you, right? For me and through you. Because every question I asked Robert, I was hoping that in those questions, there was some value that you were able to gain from this conversation. And I hope we were able to fulfill that for you. The Rick Sanchez podcast is ubiquitous, meaning it's everywhere. You can find it on Spotify or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to, you know, aguamedia.com and you can catch us there as well. Thanks so much for being with us. You know, by the way, if you happen to see some of this on YouTube and uh, you want to be a part of that as well, do me a favor and subscribe, there, please. There you go. We added the please. Subscribe, please. That's always good. I'm Rick Sanchez here with Robert Mack. Thanks so much for being with us. Dale, andale, y vamos con todo. 